When ideology overtakes thinking for oneself, who is to blame? Is the state solely responsible, or do many of us outsource our moral responsibility to ideology? According to Václav Havel, the line between ruler and ruled might be less apparent than we think. That and more on today's episode of The Liberty Exchange. I'm Landry Ayers, senior producer at Libertarianism.org, and welcome to The Liberty Exchange. To close out this week, celebrating the 10th anniversary of Havel's Place, Libertarianism.org director Jonathan Fortier is joined by Flag Taylor. Flag is an associate professor of political science at Skidmore College. He's been a visiting fellow at the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton University and has served on the Academic Council of the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. His teaching ranges widely in the history of political philosophy and in the American political tradition. Most of his writing and research has been focused on totalitarianism and dissent, liberalism, American constitutionalism, and executive power. In today's episode, they discuss Havel's varied range of influences and contemporaries, the spiritual deprivations of planned economies, and what it means to live authentically in both post-totalitarian and liberal consumerist societies. We hope you enjoy it. So I'm here with uh, Professor Flag Taylor from Skidmore University. Flag, thanks for coming on the uh, Liberty Exchange podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. Always happy to talk about Václav Havel. Yeah, we um, decided to focus on Havel for our launch week because he represents uh, so many of the themes or stood for so many of the themes that we're hoping to highlight at libertarianism.org and on the podcast in particular. His um, courageous opposition to totalitarian government in Czechoslovakia and his uh, encouragement to speak across ideological lines. One of the uh, reasons we're launching uh, next week is that uh, we have um, the 10-year anniversary of Havel's Place. Uh, the first Havel's Place was installed at Georgetown University, as you know, in October 2013. We're celebrating the installation of that and trying to extrapolate the key themes from that monument, the two chairs and the table with the tree growing through the table, seems to suggest the importance of talking across ideological lines. What does the monument mean to you? What do you think these various Havel's places are, are meant to represent? I've actually never seen it, uh, <laughs> but hearing you describe it, it sounds consistent with, with Havel's life. I mean, he was after he became president of the Czech Republic or Czechoslovakia and then subsequently Czech Republic, he kept his distance from formal political parties, kind of operating at a, at a higher level, he thought. Uh, but his experience with Charter 77, an organization that he helped found to essentially call the Czechoslovak state to abide by its own laws and kind of protect and announce to people um, – when the state was violating its own laws by persecuting people unjustly, that organization was comprised of people 
across the ideological spectrum. So uh, Havel himself came from kind of the artistic, intellectual part of uh, kind of elite class. But, you know, he worked with a conservative Catholic called Václav Benda, one of his closest allies in the charter. And he also worked with a guy named Peter Uhl, who was a Trotskyite who didn't, uh, right, was, he thought himself to be a real communist, unlike the, the pretenders in the Czechoslovak state. So Havel himself uh, certainly um, lived the, the idea of working with people across different, uh, different faiths and different political allegiances. Yeah, it seems to me that there was always a consistent appeal on, on Havel's behalf, a consistent appeal to our humanity. Uh, and um, it seems to me that this emphasis on living authentically, living in truth was an attempt to get at that, to get at a, an authentic life that was uh, somehow above, as you say, above partisan politics. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. That's, that, that kind of undergirded his whole philosophy through his uh, artistic period, through his dissonant period, and then on into his uh, period as a as a president and formal politician. So that was a consistent theme in his life. Do you think he changed politically over the course of his uh, over the course of his career as his, he evolved from playwright to to politician and then sort of elder statesman? I'm not sure. I don't. I don't think so. He. To, to my mind, looking at his plays that he that he writes in the '60s, I mean, this is during a period in Czechoslovakia when the censorship laws loosened a little bit, and so there was a period in around '65 when he wrote plays, and then they were actually performed in Prague. And the ideas he explores in those plays, and the ideas in the dissent essays, and even the writings uh, from his presidential period all, I think, are pretty consistent. I don't see any sharp disjunctures. Um, I mean, one might point to uh, the fact that I think in, in 85, uh, this interesting kind of autobiography, but it was actually an extended interview that he did with one of his friends. It's called Disturbing the Peace. And uh, he calls himself a socialist at one point during that during that extended interview autobiography. Um, but he certainly didn't behave like a socialist as president. Uh, and so if he's, you know, if, if, he, if he maintained the sense of himself as, as partly socialist into the, into the 90s, early 2000s, you know, you'd have to think, of, think about, well, what, <laughs> what did he actually do to, to make good on that description? And I'm not sure he did anything um, that, would, that would sort of put him in that, in that basket. But, I mean, there are other kind of similar thinkers one could think uh, one could discuss right orwell same thing self-described socialist but his socialism is emphatically non-revolutionary and um so there's there's some peculiar dimensions to some of the self-described socialists of the 20th century who otherwise escaped i would say the ideological deformations of um you know other other socialists and communists yeah it's ironic uh, that some of the most withering critiques of socialism come from so-called self-identified socialists like Orwell and, and Havel. And I think we should be very reluctant to uh, misinterpret the ideological commitments of figures like Orwell and Havel from our current perspective. It, it's um, easy to overlook the ideological milieu that they worked in and and the, the power of the ideas, the pressures uh, of the ideas to be compelling. I, I wonder if part of this is 
could be explained by the fact that you know figures like Orwell and Havel would have had relatively little exposure to sophisticated free market theory. Um, and so they might have had free market, classically liberal or even libertarian sympathies. Uh, they didn't have necessarily the theoretical framework to articulate those or develop theories uh, to advance them. Right. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Although Havel did know some people who uh, would have would have read someone like Hayek, one of, one of the people that he that he knew well and worked with in in the charter years in the in the seventies and eighties, a guy named Pavel Bratinka, and he became uh, quite familiar with with Hayek, and um, you know, so he he would have known people who who had read those books and seen those arguments. Right? I'm not I'm not so sure how. You know, maybe maybe they they read they dipped into some of that stuff during their reading groups and other and other kind of private educational enterprises. But yeah, I'm not really sure how um, how well versed Havel was in all of that literature. There are parts of Havel's work, and I'm thinking in particular of the Power of the Powerless, that have passages that s seem to uh, suggest that he is thinking very much along the lines of. Hayek or other figures um, in the tradition, in the Austrian tradition. Um, a few days ago, I was looking at The Power of the Powerless again and, and came across a passage late in the essay um, that I'll just quickly read here because it strikes me as being uh, extremely uh, sympathetic to classical liberal or libertarian uh, approaches to uh, spontaneous order. He writes, every society, of course, requires some degree of organization. Yet, if that organization is to serve people and not the other way around, then people will have to be liberated and space created so that they may organize themselves in meaningful ways. The depravity of the opposite approach in which people are first organized in one way or another by someone who always knows best what the people need, so they may then allegedly be liberated is something we have known on our own skins only too well. Right. Yeah, yeah. He felt the deformity of the planned economy very obviously and deeply. And uh, I mean, I, th I think he understood perfectly well the deformity in, in terms of the economic deprivations. But I would say probably even more important to him was, was just the the deprivations in terms of the, the crushing of the human spirit of creativity and uh, enterprise. He, you know, he, he, he always talked about the importance of people's independence and capacity to, to live their lives in accordance with, um, with their wishes and, and to try to um, have a, a sense of responsibility inform their creative enterprising initiatives and anything that kind of suffocated that human spirit, right? He didn't, he didn't like, so I'm, I'm certainly sure that he, he was well aware of the economic deprivations, but I think even more important was the spiritual deprivations of the planned economy. Uh, I would also add too, that I was, I was looking at some of the other uh, Havel literature last night in preparation, and I stumbled across a passage in summer meditations. This is the little um, series of essays he wrote, I think right before he, he became president, after he's elected, but he, he has, I don't think he had occupied the office officially. 
And in that essay, he calls the market economy as natural and matter-of-fact as air. And he says uh, it's a system of human economic activity that's been tried and found to work over centuries. And then in parentheses, centuries, question mark, millennia, exclamation point. And so one of the things, right, that he, he notices about the market is that it's it, it wasn't designed in the same way socialism was designed, at least the Marxist version wasn't, uh, was designed, right? And so it's, it's, some, it's the system uh, of economic organizations that's evolved slowly over the centuries. It hasn't, doesn't really have a single author. Different um, customs and, and institutions have been layered and cast off. And that's the kind of thing that Havel says, that's, that's the way human beings try to improve their life is through that uh, mechanism of kind of slow reform and adaptation. And so that's very much in keeping with his, uh, with his overall philosophy. He didn't like, I don't think, and, and he had some political uh, competitors, this guy Václav Klaus, who he thought, right, was a, was a kind of market fundamentalist. Maybe he would say that, that he raised certain principles of the market uh, and, and tried to instantiate them in a kind of fanatical way that didn't allow other goods and con- human goods and political goods and concerns to be woven into the fabric of, of political life. And so he, you know, he, I think he struggled against uh, some of the people in his own country that wanted to raise this mantle of, of the market uh, maybe higher than Havel thought it deserved to be raised. Yeah, that's very interesting. Do you think this informs his occasional critique of consumerist society? I know that in The Power of the Powerless, he makes these somewhat enigmatic comments about how consumerism, how the practices of the West have infiltrated um, Czech society, totalitarian society, um, which doesn't at first glance seem to be, or on, on, you know, even on sustained reflection, doesn't seem to be a characteristic of totalitarian societies that people are, uh, are are consumerist. What do you think he had in mind there? Was it sort of a base materialism that people succumb to, or what in particular? Yeah. So this is this is a very interesting and complicated question. So I'll try to give you uh, some very brief, as brief as possible, answers. Uh, and then you know, come come back to me and elaborate on this and that, and we we can dig into some other aspects. So so one aspect of what he's talking about in the Power of the Powerless essay is the consumerism that existed in what he would call post-totalitarian Czechoslovakia, and he would say the result that that kind of consumerism results from the pervasiveness of the ideology which deprive people of the aspiration for moral responsibility. In other words, ideology is what um, it, it replaces, you could say, the, the human propensity to have to face and make moral choices every day. They sort of, you could say, they outsource their moral responsibility to the ideology because the ideology answers all these questions and supposedly right tells people how to how to behave and so Hobble wants to argue i think that in that circumstance people retreat to being satisfied by material things 
if they can't satisfy their longing for decency through genuine moral choice, they will replace that uh, by a, a kind of um, happiness that's only rooted in material well-being. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter that material well-being was, was kind of hard to come by. Whatever material satisfactions you can gain, that's what you gain. I mean, so other thinkers, I think this guy Zinoviev in, uh, in, in Russia, right, talks about the uh, in, the, in the late Soviet Union, what did people cling to as a, uh, a way to happiness? Vodka, alcohol, right? Rampant, rampant uh, dysfunction. Um, and so that, that sort of, that's one aspect of, of the consumerism. And he writes a very funny play about this uh, called The Unveiling uh, in, 19, in 1975. And uh, it's this portrait of this, of this well-to-do couple Right, and the guy has a some some job where he has some connection to the party, so he's able to travel abroad, and he brings home all these interesting trinkets from other countries, Western records, and they this couple invite um, this character called Vanyak over to their house, uh, over to their flat, and they unveil all the stuff that they've acquired, and he sort of shows you how this apparent consumerist satisfaction with all this material stuff conceals a deep kind of spiritual emptiness that slowly emerges over the course of the of the play. So that's well, that's one aspect of what he means by the critique of consumerism. But I also think he has a critique of consumerism in the West, which is kind of a separate deal. Right. No, that's that's fascinating. Yeah. I mean it gets at this again, it it's intersects importantly with this whole notion of living authentically, I think, um, is, and uh, as you say, taking moral responsibility for, uh, for one's actions and not offloading that to, to a regime or an ideology. This, this is a theme that, that recurs frequently in Havel's work, as I understand it. I mean, normally we think of people living under so under the Soviet Union, under Soviet totalitarian oppression as victims. And of course they were in many profound ways, but Havel frames it with a twist. And that is that people are also in some sense, willing participants in, in the ongoing oppression that they in a sense are in refusing to, to live authentically or live truthfully or call out the lies they sustain the the system and this recalls other figures that have written um, on related themes i'm thinking of etienne de la boatie who wrote on voluntary servitude that the powers of kings and queens exist because individuals continue to see them as legitimate does do you think this informs part of this notion of making moral choices as opposed to living in a world of um of consumption or a world that uh, neglects that aspect of our lives. Yeah, he. So in the, I love to raise this this question with my with my students when we we read Power of the Powerless because there's this remarkable point in uh, in that essay where he calls uh, this post totalitarian system a quote mass record of individual failure, and he says he elaborates and he says in uh, kind of conventional thinking about politics. 
the first thing you do is figure out, okay, who are the rulers and who are the ruled, right? And you make some judgments about whether this particular group, whether it's the one, the many, or the few, you use Aristotle's right formulation, are they ruling in the common good? Are they ruling in their own interest? But there's always this uh, important distinction, right? Who are the rulers and who are the ruled? And Havel says that distinction really doesn't matter as much in a post-totalitarian society or even a totalitarian society. Now, one reaction to that, I think, should be to any right sensible person, that's crazy. <laughs> that's a crazy thing to say because if there's ever been a harder – has there ever been a harder distinction between rulers and rule than the one that exists in a totalitarian regime, right? That, that just seems uh, obvious. But what he goes on to say is that it doesn't – because of the presence and pervasiveness of ideology – Everyone serves the ideology, from the rulers to the smallest person, right? So you, you know the example in the Power of the Palace of the Green Grocer, right? He puts up the sign in the window that says, Workers of the World Unite. He does it every day. And so Hobble's argument is that everyone from the highest general secretary of the party to the lowliest person who might just be putting up a sign or who might be voting a certain way at their weekly union meeting or using the correct phrases that they're supposed to use at a certain meeting. Everyone does these things and they're, they're, they're keeping this system going by their part participation in the lie. And, uh, and so I think he means that quite seriously, that at some level, no political regime in history has, has demanded more participation. I guess participation might not be the right, the right word, but demanded more kind of daily conformity and signaling than any than any other regime. And to the extent that that's true, right, his real hope is that if someone doesn't put the sign up, that can lead, he, he, he calls it a potential bacteriological weapon, right? That once the sign is removed from one shop, right, then that opens the door. Well, the, the guy down the street might say, well, if he can do it, right, I'll, I'll try. Yeah, I'm glad you raised that example. He says in the initial discussion of the green grocer that really what the green grocer is saying is that I'm obedient, please leave me alone. And um, I wonder to what extent a lot of the, um, what we call virtue signaling today of putting up signs on one's lawn and so forth, declaring one's political allegiances is in part uh, mm -hmm. the same sort of thing. Right, right. And Havel, I mean, the point that he makes in, in the context of... Um, talking about this this green grocer, this shopkeeper, he says if the sign said explicitly, I'm, a, I'm obedient, leave me alone, he would be less inclined to put up the sign because he wouldn't want to announce his cowardice. And so this is another thing that he, I think another interesting point he makes about ideology is that it hides from you it enables you to hide from yourself the low foundations of your obedience and also hide it hide it from others that you can hide behind this seemingly principled selfless slogan but it just it conceals the the reality of your cowardice and, and obedience another thing he meditates on at some length in power of the powerless is the ritualistic nature of totalitarian control and the anonymity of the various forces that 
that subjugate us. Um, there's a passage uh, about uh, a quarter of the way through in which um, he says people in the post-totalitarian system uh, feel that they are um, oppressed or pushed aside by faceless people, puppets, those uniformed flunkies of the rituals and routines of power. And I'm wondering, you know, to what extent this is also applicable to other kinds of political regimes, large centralized bureaucracies that we deal with in the West as well, that we feel, you know, the administrative state uh, is in some sense uh, guilty of violating our freedoms or constricting us or reducing the free flow of goods and services and ideas and so forth, not as, of course, in, in as explicit or as an oppressive as oppressively as it did in totalitarian societies, but still um, you get the sense that some of these observations apply to different sorts of, of political regimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is one, I mean, people have remarked too, this is one of the reasons why his plays have uh, continued to find audiences and, and readers because they do apply to not just totalitarian regimes, but bureaucracy, more generally large corporate bureaucracies. And, you know, the sense that you can't find, it's it's very hard to pinpoint responsibility. And this is what is, is dehumanizing about these institutions. There's a very funny play called The Memorandum, which I would recommend to your listeners, which um, is kind of a wonderful illustration of, of anonymity and bureaucracy and how crazy it it makes uh, it makes people, uh, and in the, yeah, in the, in the power of the powerless, he he does a wonderful job too of talking about. Uh, I think he's in part right. That essay is not only he writes it. I think for a a domestic audience, right? The the checks and the polls are are trying to clarify the ground of their descent and their understanding of ideology, but he's also writing it for a Western audience. And at one point when he's talking about the theme that you're pointing to, Jonathan, he says um, – oh, he, he, he sort of laughs at all these Western so Sovietologists who are, who are trying to look behind the curtain and see, oh, is it Brezhnev or Andropov or Chernyenko? And, the, you know, they think somehow it matters which of these faceless guys is behind the curtain. And Havel and, and Benda writes about this too. They're, they're all just in agreement that stop with the, the Sovietology – personality analysis right none of it none of it matters it's the ideological system that that drives people to behave the way they do and right Havel wants to say that this is really you, you could say this is the the thing that he finds most dehumanizing about the whole system he has this word that um the translator of the essay um Paul Wilson, I don't know what the Czech word is, but he, he translated it as uh, automatism or, or, or something like this, right? And so it's just the sense that things are on autopilot. There's no way for a human being to have any effect. There's no way for human will and responsibility to insert itself. And therefore, Havel has this wonderful phrase where he says, in, in such a system, it is, it is ideology or theory that starts to shape reality, not the reverse, right? And so in a healthy political regime, there might be certain principles, guiding principles that you could call the kind of theoretical principles, 
but those principles, when they come into contact with reality, right, you can adjust them and, you know, think about what, what principles need to be maintained or how they need to be adjusted. But in the totalitarian system, right, Havel's point is people, people reify the principles and the ideology to such an extent that reality starts to have to adapt itself to the ideology. And it, that's what leads to this crazy inhuman anonymity and, and the sense that things are just moving and no one is in charge. Do you think that we are at risk of forgetting those lessons, forgetting the grim lessons of totalitarianism from the 20th century? Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, you pointed to the problem of virtue signaling, right? People have um, that the, you could say the ideological temptation is still is still around. There might not be ideologies in the sense of a comprehensive, uh, purely uh, intrinsic intrinsically logical ideology in the sense of Marxist Leninism that that um, is on offer. I mean, though there there's still there's still Cuba and China and um, you know there's that threat, but I think ideological thinking is still around and it uh, offers a, certainly offers a temptation. The other way I would answer that question is to go back to your question a few minutes ago about consumerism, right? So Havel talks about consumerism in the context as it existed in these totalitarian societies, but his point about consumerism in the West, you, you could say there are, there are two temptations in the modern world for Havel. Uh, and this is from Letters to Olga. He considers this the kind of fundamental state of human beings to be a state of separation, where human beings are always, um, once once they become, once they recognize themselves as subjects, we long for meaning. We, we, we long for responsibility. Those are the, kind of the two words that come up again and again in the letters is meaning and responsibility. But there's two ways of, you could say, of avoiding meaning and responsibility. One is to grab an ideology and Havel calls this fanaticism or utopianism, right? You try to hold being in place and you outsource your moral responsibility to this system or to this thing. Um, and, and, you know, that leads to the consequences that he, that he had to live, unfortunately. But then he also says the other way to uh, avoid meaning and responsibility is to retreat to what he calls existence in the world, and existence in the world means avoiding any um, aspiration to, to meaning, uh, avoiding responsibility, being satisfied purely by material things. And so you could say it's, it's almost the exact inverse of the ideological temptation. And his worry is that while the totalitarian East is defined by the ideological temptation, the, the, the industrial capitalist West is defined by this retreat, this existence in the world temptation where people turn away from community and responsibility and, and politics. And they don't, they don't try to find an ideology. They just kind of opt out of their humanity completely. Right. So it's, it's not a retreat to the mountain to meditate. It's a retreat from moral responsibility uh, and an obsession or a, a preoccupation with just the material existence. Yeah. And I mean, I would say too, he, Havel didn't, uh, I don't know if he ever commented on the, the growing cell phone 
technology, right? But just, I, I think he would see, you know, young people just staring at their phone all day, uh, you know, looking at silly, silly videos <laughs> as, as a kind of um, distracting yourself to death, distracting yourself from the presence of other human beings, right? Genuine connection to other human beings. And I suspect he, he wouldn't be surprised by the technological aspects that would uh, enable one to, to retreat from hu humanity towards this kind of existence, existence in the world, right? It seems to me that the totalitarian impulse has been reanimated in the West in the last few years. I think we saw it very explicitly during uh, the COVID years. Um, there was a very obvious temptation uh, on behalf of political leaders in the West to uh, uh, centralize power and decision-making, to stifle dissent, to censor uh, voices that uh, opposed the dominant narratives do you do you see similar sorts of things happening um and if so do you do you see a solution to this yeah i mean i i i would i would certainly agree with your uh, characterization of of the response of many governments during the the covid crisis um i'm not sure that there is a solution uh i mean so havel would say right that the Havel was wary of always trying to find a technological solution to non-technological problems. And so I suspect he would he would say that the what COVID demonstrates is is that the, this aspiration to kind of conquer death <laughs> fits with the the modern technological project. I mean, he, this this is this is where he has some uh, significant, I think, disagreements. Of some, uh, I'm sorry, significant agreements with someone like Solzhenitsyn. That, to the extent that that we think human beings are the center of existence, he, Solzhenitsyn has this phrase. He calls it anthropocentrism, uh, and therefore, you know, the, the essentially the modern conquest, modern project is this conquest of of death and making us perfectly at home in the world. Right, I think Havel would share Solzhenitsyn's discomfort with the scope of that of that aspiration. Um, you know, not that we shouldn't find vaccines and you know do things to to avoid human misery as much as possible. Um, but the idea that you can make us kind of perfectly safe and no one's going to ever get the disease and no one's going to ever get infected and we should do whatever it takes, right? I think Havel would say, no, there's some real trade-offs that we need to to keep in mind and keep in, keep in mind how a government behaves during a so-called crisis, right, is going to give it certain inclinations and habits <laughs> for, for how it's going to want to behave in six, seven, eight, you know, nine, ten years. Um, and so he was, he was, one of his consistent themes in, in uh, his political writings, I think, was always think about uh, and, and this actually is a, is a nice connection to the American founders, right? Havel was always very concerned to think about what scale of government is appropriate to what solution, right? So is this a local thing? Is this a regional thing? Is this a countrywide thing? And and in that sense, I, I think he was very attuned to 
this is always an important political question in the modern world. Where where should this uh, political problem attempt to be solved, and by and by whom? It it you know maybe maybe we need to do something about it, but it matters who does it, and it matters where in the political system the problem is is addressed. Flag, we really appreciate your perspectives on Havel. Is there any? Thing you'd like to say uh, before we wrap up the conversation today? It's been a pleasure. I just just say that uh, Havel's worth reading all of his writings. I think people will enjoy. If uh, some of your audience, I would imagine, they're probably most familiar with Power of the Powerless, but they should dip into the rest of his essays. They're they're always uh, wonderful. I mean, I think the most maybe the most important thing you can say about Havel is just what a wonderful writer he was find your way to the essays, then I would recommend uh, the plays like the memorandum and the, the play that I mentioned actually is very, f- the, 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 there's a trilogy of one act plays that, that are partly autobiographical and they're based on this character called Ferdinand Vanyak and the trilogy, they're just called the Vanyak plays and the first one's called Audience, the next one is called Unveiling and the third one is called, called Protest and those are very easy to read, they're great fun, it's just straight straight dialogue. Um, and then if you're interested in the more philosophical um, hovel where he uses, you know, these Heideggerian concepts and investigates being and all these deep metaphysical questions, you should dip into uh, Letters from Olga. So hovel offers, I would say, something something for everyone. <laughs> Great. Well, we'll link uh, both to uh, your uh, website and uh, to some of these works in the show notes. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. You bet. Thank you for listening to The Liberty Exchange, a project of libertarianism.org. This episode was hosted by Jonathan Fortier and produced by Landry Ayers. Special thanks to Flag Taylor and the rest of the libertarianism.org team, including Pericles Niarchos, Allison Yaffe, Paul Meany, and Grant Babcock. If you liked this and want more, visit us online at libertarianism.org.